Hey, welcome to the Street Shots Photography Podcast with the Switch to Manual guys. I am Antonio, and today filling in for uh, Tom is my good friend and fellow podcaster and the person who helped me get into podcasting, uh, Bart Bushots from the Let's Talk Photography Podcast. Bart, thanks for coming in. My absolute pleasure, Antonio. I've, I've been dying to join you on here. For, for ages now, it's just, with all you know, we're so far apart time zone-wise, it's never easy to pull off. Yeah, it worked out today. Uh, have have we not had you on the show? I don't think so. Well, my oh, memory's no. terrible, but I don't think oh, so. I don't, I, I've had you guys on loads of times because yeah, you, you guys rock, but I, I don't yeah, think no, it's my first time hmm. the other way around, in, in reverse. Really? I'm sorry about that. <laughs> I've been meaning to. That's fine. <laughs> I was say, it's difficult to schedule, right? It is good. It is difficult to schedule, yes. And, and I'm trying to make a more rigorous schedule for doing street shots. And so, uh, yeah, but it is, it is hard to find. But I swear, I guess I've been on your show so many times, I just figured that you've been on this show. So, but uh, hey, this is our, our 53rd um, episode. So, so you guys have already passed me out, basically, is what you're saying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, you've been doing it for so long. Now, everybody, Bart is, I think, Bart, you might have had me, you might be the first person. I was on a podcast with you, and was it Victor? Well, Victor, yeah, Victor Cahillao did the, this idea of sort of a, 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 once a quarter, he would get a bunch of photographers together on a panel show, because his, his show was usually not a panel show, but once, so four times a year, he would get a panel together, and I think we were both on together. Right. And we get on really well. And when I started my photography podcast, I wanted to do a sort of a, you know, imagine you're all sitting in a pub around a beer having a chat about photography kind of show. And immediately that reminded me of Victor's, you know, conversation style of the shows. And immediately I went, I got to find that Antonio guy because oh, it was good fun. Yeah. But that's where we met, and right? Vic- I think. It was yeah, and then show. Victor was good enough to, to to put us in touch. And you've been on loads of times since. And yeah, so it's it's, it's thanks to Victor, really. Yeah, yeah. And you've been doing uh, the Let's Talk Photography podcast for how long? Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so if you're good at mathematics, we can work this out. So episode 43 was the last one, and it's a monthly show. So that means it's somewhere between three and four years, right? Yeah, wow. Wow. And I think I, I was on, like, your first or second one, maybe? We have, we have the ability of the Wayback Machine. The Wayback. Uh, let me, yeah, yeah. Let's, see, let's see what happens. So wow. if we go to... You're kidding me. The L- time is... Fl- oh, my one. Yeah, so I I have shortcut links for all my episodes. So episode one, look, uh, no, you weren't on episode one. Mark, Polly, Alistair Jenks, Kenny Lee. No, I wasn't on so, one. I remember that. Yeah. So maybe. Was like no, this is terrible years. radio. It was a long time ago. Oh, long time. It, ago, it must really. be. Yeah. And yeah. well, so there you are, Antonio Rosario. Episode two, posted on the thirteenth of November, twenty thirteen. Ooh. <laughs> wow. Okay, so we've yeah, wow, and um, that's been it, it's it, it's a long time and it's not a long time. It's like only four years, but it does like in that many episodes ago, that many months ago. It seems it does seem like a long yeah. time. Wow. So yeah, the, yeah, that's where we met. Anyway, Bart. I mean, I'm so glad that I'm now finally on the show with you here. My pleasure. Yeah, I'll have to figure out where Tom is. <laughs> I, you know, this was um, so it's sort of a last-minute uh, decision to do the do the episode tonight as a Friday. Uh, I know that uh, Tom is usually available on Mondays, but I wanted to get something in. I mean, I'm still probably going to do like you know the next episode with Tom 
if he's available. But uh, I needed to squeeze one in. And I've had something, I've had something on my mind for a little while. And actually, Bart, I thought you were a really good uh, person to talk about this with. Um, and this, so everybody's going to be a little technical to start off with. I mean, I know we're, you know, we try not to be a too technical show, but you know, this is something that we're all going to come across. And um, this idea of uh, this idea, this thing that we have built in our cameras and in our processing software called picture profiles. Yeah, yeah. And um, what is what are picture profiles? And I, I really didn't want to have this conversation in my head by myself. <laughs> so anyway, so- Bart, I thought you know. You, um, I know we've geeked out a lot on your show, so I thought maybe you could return the favor. Oh. Yeah, so I'm sort of playing your stooge here because I, I to, to me, these are things that exist in a hypothetical sense. I am aware that there is such a menu on my camera, and I am aware that there is apparently such a thing in Lightroom because you told me so. <laughs> but it's certainly not something I use in a day-to-day basis, so I'm, I'm sort of curious. I'm going to get to play the, uh, the the everyman in this episode okay. and try to figure out what's going on. And I'll try so to... So on, on my Nikon, I have it in front of me here. Well, so I've got I both have my this... Nikon and my Fuji in front of me here, too, so we can... So I have this menu, which right now says SD, which apparently stands for standard. Mm-hmm. And then I have another one called NL for neutral, and then VI for vivid, MC for monochrome. I take it that's... Is that, a, is that what you're talking about? That is... Yes, that's part of what I'm talking about. Um... Definitely part of it. It's part of the whole process. Picture profiles are, I mean, the, the easiest thing I can say are sort of the equivalent of, um, this is going to be for the older people in the audience, but this is going to be the equivalent of different film stocks that your camera can simulate. Now, I'm, I'm, when I say film stocks, it's not in a literal sense, although if, if you have a Fuji camera, Fuji cameras have these film simulations in them, but what what uh, a picture profile is is settings on your camera that allow you to adjust inside the camera different aspects of the picture. So you can do some uh, adjustments to the contrast. You can do some adjustments to the color, to the sharpness, to the white balance, all this kind of stuff. And you can save these in your camera. And then when you take a picture, what you see on the back of the screen will be, um, these settings will be reflected in the image you see in the back of the screen. It, is that kind of a simple? Yeah, system? yeah. So, <laughs> and I guess if you're shooting in JPEG, you don't just see them in the back of the screen. They're also how the JPEG is processed because I guess ultimately, well, your digital camera's just, it's just got a whole bunch of levels of red, green, and blue. And to turn that into a picture, it has to do some maths. Right. And the default maths, I think, is very scientific very neutral very unartistic it's just Uh you know very plain Uh and whereas with these picture profiles you take the same raw input and you run it through some different maths which may emphasize the the, all the colors or maybe more of the green or whatever but basically the same raw numbers get run through different maths and out pops an image with a lot more personality a lot more character but of course depending on how you feel Maybe better or worse, depending on, depending on what you had in mind. Correct. Yeah, the uh, I like to when you're saying that I like to also think of them maybe as like a recipe, right? Yeah. So your your camera is going to produce some sort of raw image, and then you're up, you're taking some ingredients in the camera, and you're outputting uh, sort of a final baked image. The yeah. the 
the what, what I was saying about the equivalent of film stocks in the in the old days, <laughs> which I can talk about because I shot film too. <laughs> yes, I shot film, and I shot film when there was a lot uh, less um, amounts of choice of films. But you know, we would choose films based on the way the the films looked. You know, if I would choose a Fuji style film or a Kodak style film, I, I would do that because I liked the looks of it, the way the image was baked. Uh, when it was processed. Um, yeah, I, I think initially I didn't understand the difference it would make until one day I went into my favorite camera shop and I had always just bought Kodak, Kodachrome 800 or 400. It was just always was Kodak, Kodachrome, Kodak, Kodachrome. And then one day I went into the shop and he didn't have any. I was like, what do you mean you don't have any? I always buy this film. I said, yeah, but I have this Fuji stuff instead. I think it was Fuji 800 Press or something like uh -huh. that. Is that possible? Mm -hmm. Yes. And it could be. Yeah. I did exactly what I always do. Same camera, same everything. And the pictures were way nicer. And I never went back to the Kodak stuff again. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes. And I'm going to get into the film in a second. Uh, it's just something popped in my head. It was that... Um, um, uh, just go back to the, to the digital camera for a second. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the presets or the f uh, picture profiles or whatever they're called. I mean, every camera has a different, every manufacturer calls it something different. Yeah. Um, you know, like I said, Fuji has the, what they call film simulations. Nikon has got, I think, is it picture profile? I'm going to look at the exact word here. So a picture control apparently is what the picture menu is control, called right. on my D5100. Canon's got picture profiles. Uh, and I'm sure Olympus and Ryko and everybody else has got something different right and i have to say they're very limited on this nikon and this nikon is far from new so the i imagine nikon is yeah the nikon is limited yeah this is why i wanted to talk about this because you know i've been switching uh i'm not i don't want to make this a fuji podcast but i've been switching most of my photography from my nikons to my fuji cameras and the fuji cameras have a lot more extensive controls for these things called picture profiles or film simulations I mean, I've been listening to you do ever more stuff in JPEG, and when I'm hearing you describe what you're doing with your Fujis, I'm sitting there going, well, if I did want to shoot JPEG, I wouldn't want to do it with my camera. I'd want to do it with Antonio's. With the Fuji, yes. I, that's one of the reasons. I mean, I was always in this camp that, uh, that I wanted to shoot raw files only and do all my processing uh, in post-production in Lightroom sitting in front of my computer and, and create my, uh, my, my look, whatever that is, that way. And hmm. I was doing that exclusively with my Nikon. And then as I switched to Fuji, um, I realized that there was a lot less I wanted to do in front of my computer because the camera was doing a lot of that work by creating uh, a look in the, photo in the photographs that I, that I resonated with. So... Yeah. I would be able to tweak my camera settings to create contrast and the color saturation that I would like. And then I would shoot the pictures and it was something, it was like the, what you were talking about when you were discovering Fujifilm. It was like, oh, that's me. I like the way mm. that looks. But I think it's important to talk about like the, um, the camera is shooting raw pictures all the time. Whether yeah. you're shooting raw and JPEG or RAW or just JPEG, the camera's always producing a RAW file. It's whether or not you're saving it or not, whether you shoot RAW. 
but yeah, I mean, raw is just the data as it comes out of the sensor, so it's always it's always coming out of the sensor, right. and then the camera's think, little brain has to decide what to do. Yeah, I think some people don't understand that 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 the camera is always shooting raw, no matter what, because they say, "Well, I hear about shooting raw," but um, yeah, your camera shoots raw. The raw data is coming off the camera, then the camera is making some sort of processing. Um, decisions based on what settings you've done for your picture profiles and then it's showing you on the back of the screen the results of that and even if you shoot raw files the back of your camera is going to show you what you've set your picture profile to so if you created a picture profile that has a lot of contrast and a lot of um, uh, you know deep shadows then when you look at the back of your camera after you've taken your picture, even if you're shooting raw, you're going to see the you're going to see those that picture profile reflected in your LCD screen, right? Yes. Yeah, because there's a JPEG preview baked into the raw. Right, because the camera can't <laughs> the cameras can't see raw files. I mean, they can't present raw files. They have to present a uh, JPEG file. Yeah, I mean, you should think of a raw file as being like a piece of scientific data. Which is what it is. It's this is what came out of the sensor, you know. So it, it, it's so much green pixels, so much red pixels, so much blue pixels. It's useless to a human being to look at. You have to turn it into some sort of pixel pixel based image, some sort of bitmap. Whether you save it as a JPEG or not doesn't matter. You, you got to do that to see it at all. Right. I, you know, did you used to get confused when you lo- loaded up your raw files into Lightroom and? <sighs> You were watching them import, and they looked really good. Yeah. All of a sudden, Lightroom would start the the, the little previews would start changing, and they go yeah, from looking really ones. good to really not good. Yeah, it's average, completely uninspiring, completely neutral. You know, like, oh, oh, there's a lot of contrast there. No, we couldn't be having that. Oh, there's personality in these images. No, we must remove all of that. Remove all. And I used to, like, for the longest time, I was like, what is going on? I didn't know what was going on until later on I found out that Lightroom is initially loading up these little JPEG images, these little baked images, um, into the program while it's loading all the raw data. And then when it finally gets to loading the raw data, then it shows you the raw image without this little baked picture profiled JPEG. Well, it's not so much that it shows you, though. What it's doing is basically second-guessing your camera and starting from the same zero and then using its brain instead of the camera's brain to get its interpretation of the image. And its interpretation with all default settings tends to be extremely average, extremely, yeah, just personality-less, bland, which is, I guess, a really good starting point because then that gives every photographer a canvas on which to work instead of biasing them towards one look or another. Well, yeah. Yeah, and my my workflow was, uh, especially with my Nikon cameras or every other camera I had, was, yeah, I would shoot raw pictures, and, you know, I might set my... I actually might set my picture profile on my camera to simulate what a raw file would look like. So, in other words, rather than setting my picture profile on my camera so that there was a lot of contrast and a lot of saturation, mm. I would set everything so it was very flat, so there was no contrast... And so there was no uh, extra saturation. And that way, when I looked at the back of my camera, after I took a picture, I would see a relatively close approximation to what the raw file would look like. So it would look pretty not great on the back of the camera. Yeah, neutral. And then you you would decide what to do with it afterwards, whether you wanted to push the contrast or drop the contrast or push the shadows or darken the highlights or whatever, you know, whatever 
whatever, whatever look matched whatever, what you were doing. Whatever your look was. Yeah, and um, and so that would mean that I would go into Lightroom, and then you know I would do all my 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 looks and my processing there. Uh, yeah. And now for me, it's it shifted. It's shifted to letting the camera do a lot of that work for me. And um, you know, you and I are coming from I from sort of different processing points of view as well. Yeah, I'm I'm still very much living in the. You know, I, I sort of describe photography as a game of two halves. And in my case, the, the, the time between the first half, which is the shooting, and the second half, which is the processing, can be six to 12 months quite often. Really? That long? Oh, yeah. I'm, right now I'm editing. I'm not doing too bad. Actually, right now, today, I'm editing stuff from the 28th of December 2016. So that's not too bad. But I have unedited stuff going back as far as, oh, yeah, there we go, 3rd of January 2015. <laughs> really? Waiting wow. for me to do. Really? So, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's this is so interesting because in the days of film, more often than not, uh, you know, we had we someone would shoot negatives, someone would shoot transparencies, mm-hmm. and the usual f- workflow would be that if you were shooting transparencies, you were pretty much done with your picture when you took it. You had to make sure everything looked good in the frame, and then you took your your picture, and then you processed it, and you ended up with this little tra- you know slide. Yeah. That uh, there wasn't much you could do with it when when it was done. I mean, you wouldn't take a color slide into the dark room, and uh, there was actually I don't think there was really any way for you to do any kind of dark room work to a slide. Um, there there was, but I'm, I'm I'm making sort of a general statement. Well, the, my memory of slides was that they were particularly pernickety with a very small dynamic range, and you had to be pretty darn careful. Yeah, pretty. I mean, that was that's that's very true, and very similar to our JPEGs now in some way. Um, there's yes. a, a, a narrow range, but yeah, with the slides, you were you were kind of having to do everything in camera. You had to make sure that your lighting was good, or whatever was you know whatever you were shooting was good, and then you dropped it off at the lab. You got your little box of slides back, and you were done. You were pretty much that was your workflow. Um, yeah. You needed to make a print. You would take the slide and you would send it off to a place and make what were called a cibachrome or something like that. And there wasn't there was some adjustments you can do to it, but you 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 weren't necessarily sitting in front of an enlarger doing it. But if you were shooting negatives. You know, black and white or even colored negatives. The idea is that you were making those negatives and then you may like put them in a file someplace. You may make a contact sheet of them so that you could look at them. And then your your workflow is that you'd be processing them later, like what yeah. you're doing now in some way. Um, you would be taking more time to make the image. Uh, as yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't call it a digital darkroom for nothing, right? Right. <laughs> no, of course. Um, and... The uh, you know going back to the to the the films like you would be choosing your films whether it was negative film or positive films based on maybe you were choosing um, the, based on the look of the film and how it would work on mm-hmm. the job I hate to say job but whatever yeah the subject the, the the thing you were the planning subject, to yeah. like for instance there was um, uh, you know Kodak uh, not Kodak well, there was Kodachrome, but there was Velvia. I was going to say, that it definitely existed. I shot with that. <laughs> yes. Well, Kodachrome is one of the nicest films. It was one of the films I miss. Well, it's funny. I say I miss it now, but I am not shooting film. But it's one of the films I wish I could just sort of pick up again if I uh, had the ability to. But, uh, for instance, you might um, have a Kodachrome. You mentioned Kodachrome. There was a Kodachrome 200 speed, 200 ISO film, <laughs> which was a high speed film <laughs> or higher speed. Yeah, well, it, uh, I... 
being into railway photography from early on, I, I, I very quickly started to push the films and what was it Kodak Gold Ultra 800 or something? And that, mm-hmm. that was that actually was a, print a dog film. ugly was a film. Print film. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I used to use that and it was, it was pretty dog ugly actually. Really? And then I discovered that the, the Fuji people knew what they were at when it came to ISO 1800. In fact, the Fuji people managed to make nice films at 1600, which, you know, for, <laughs> for someone who likes to stick a big zoom on, that was like, ooh. <laughs> it's so funny. You're talking about that uh, film being 1600 speed and bringing fast film. And today it's like that's, uh, you know, yes, modest uh, ISO on the, on the digital cameras. Well, it depends on the age of your camera because... Well, it does depend yeah, on the age. Because mine, mine, you did 5,100, 1,600 is as high as I... Actually, no, I push it to 3,200. Right. Now that I think you did it in 6,400. Yeah, no, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I mean, in general. I mean, what you, though? Anything above 800 was mush. <laughs> the, um, um, I want to get off on my, on my train of thought here. Ah, <laughs> the brain, <laughs> the brain is gone. You're saying you have to shoot your film before oh. you went out on the job. Yeah, so, like, uh, you know, if I was going to shoot... Uh, portraits, you know, I might not want to use a Kodachrome 200 speed film because it was a little grainy and maybe a little bit yellow biased, which it was. But it was a beautiful film, but it was not, you know, what I would use for shooting portraits. I might use, you know, a Fuji Astia or something like that with a softer palette or um, maybe Kodachrome, ectochr- like a, not Kodachrome, an Ectochrome film. Um, I was going to say Ectochrome 25. I was always very fond of that. It was one. Kodachrome 25. I don't think there was an Ectochrome 25. Was it not? Mm-hmm. Or was that 100? Maybe that was 100. It was 100. The, the lowest that I think Kodak came out with was a Kodachrome 25, which was one of the nicest. That would, that film you could shoot every, everything with, although it was a 25-speed film. But you could go out. Yeah, you could shoot the, it slowly. Yeah, you go out in the middle of the day, and, and, and uh, you wouldn't have to use a neutral density filter to get some really nice, you know, uh, shallow depth of field effects. But, again, you were choosing your films based on your subject matter. You know, I mean, uh Fuji, Fuji made Velvia, which was a very fine-grained film, very high saturation. It was really good for landscapes or stuff like that. Um, and, yeah, and you, I mean, you had to – it was a kind of an investment, right? Because you could only keep so many different films in the house. Or I always kept my film in the fridge, which didn't make my mother very happy because I was still living at home when I was shooting film. Mm-hmm. Right. And, I mean, so you, you might be able to have a stock of three or well, – I certainly – you know, I was a teenager. I, I could only afford to have maybe two or three – films in the fridge at a time and even then mom was like why do you need different ones i mean they all fit in the same camera it's like well they look different what what do you mean they look different yeah but if you wanted to have a wide palette if you'll excuse it you know Mm -hmm. it's probably not the perfect term but that was a real you had to think about it you had to plan ahead you had to go shopping you had to keep them somewhere and then on the day you went to shoot you had to go through your larder Mm-hmm. And then decide of the subset at your disposal which one was the best fit for the day. I mean, it's it's a very different world to just going into that menu now and going, try this, take right, a try shot. This, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, Chimp, when I used, no, when I used to go on a trip, I would have to buy I would buy bulk you know film like in packs of twenty, and so I would make the decision to buy like maybe you know eighty rolls of daylight film and then I would only bring twenty rolls of high speed film in case I want to shoot at night. And those are my choices. And, you know, yeah. schlep off to some country and that was what I'm stuck with. And uh yeah, there wasn't and if I wanted to carry the two films around with me, I'd have to finish one roll of film before I could pop in the other roll of film. So if it was getting close to nighttime and I wanted to use my high speed film, I'd have to somehow finish my daylight film 
or rewind it back into the canister and then put the new film in. And there was a real... And then remember how far you'd wound it so yes. that the next time yes. around you didn't end up with ghosty pictures. Yeah. One of the things I don't miss about film, like when I start getting hearing about like the film nostalgia, stuff like that, there are parts of that that I don't really miss. And, and that this was one of the parts. And, uh, you know, when they started coming up with this idea of picture profiles, and I think that's been evolving since digital cameras have come out because... I don't remember my earlier digital cameras having so many more, so many of these options for in, internally changing the 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 um, the look of the file and camera. Um, Do we have Instagram to thank for this this trend? Well, I wanted to talk about that because, like, people are going to say, "Well, what's a picture profile? How is that different than an Instagram filter?" Uh, and that's a very good question. I remember, I remember we, you, me was, uh, we were trying to explain this to Allison Sheridan on her show about what filters were, right? I think that was an episode that two of us were on. Sounds was it true? Or was it just talking to me? Well, we, yeah, we, I think we were talking about filters in the different. Were we talking about filters in this context or in a different context? Were we were talking remember. about like orange filters to yeah. mess around with your black and whites, or were we black talking about well, filters? We were talking about that, but but uh, yeah, I thought we were talking about anyway. We may have been. We may have been. You know, we're getting old. I'm not remembering everything so well. I've never remembered stuff, and I'd, I'd like to think I'm not too old yet. Yeah, the brain goes first. But, um, you know, how are these different than, like, how is a picture profile different than a filter? And uh, my first thought was, um, uh, you know, a picture profile is something that I can customize. It's something that, um, you know, I I can sit there with my camera. Let's say I'm doing it in camera, not in, in Lightroom. Mm. But we can talk about Lightroom in a minute. But... I'm coming up with a look that my camera is going to shoot, you know, um, the JPEGs in, and I can tweak that a lot. And I like to think that a filter like an Instagram is something that somebody else came up with that looks good. I, and then you're... See, I was going to say that there's a one-word difference between them, and that's called subtlety. The, the, the ones that come into your fancy pants cameras are subtle and tasteful, and the filters are intentionally very strong. I mean, they're... Whatever they are, subtle is not the word for them. And I'm not yes. saying that in a pejorative way, but they're not subtle. Right. Yeah. I mean, a good example of that, if we talk about like uh, an iOS um, camera app called Hipstamatic, which I think was one of the first mm. ones to come out that had really extensive filtration going on and, and basically was simulating different cameras and different – actually, they were trying to simulate film stocks as well. But yeah, they, they simulate a lot. You sort of choose your camera, choose your lens, choose your pretend film, and they were trying to simulate the lot. Exactly. And with the amount of combinations that you can come up with, you could certainly create a unique look, I think, with with an app like that. But they they weren't they still weren't subtle. Um, no. And there was very little way of dialing your picture back. And you and again, like we were saying before, it's like your your image is now baked with that look. And if you were to go back to your computer and you say, well, you know what? I like that picture of that seagull, but I didn't want it to look like it was shot in 1849 with a old camera. I would like to get back to the original picture. There was probably a very not an easy way to do it. In fact, it was probably impossible because your image was baked in with this, with this filter. Yep. All and the other data was thrown away. All of it, yeah, it's gone. And so you're stuck with it. And you know, when we talk about today, we want to shooting, you know, we want to shoot raw. And like your workflow is that you're leaving yourself open to, well, I'm going to do my look and my picture profiling, quote unquote, um, mm. when I'm back at my computer. So I leave myself a whole bunch of options. So if I want to make it look like 1849, I can. But if I want to go back to a blue sky, 
You can do that very. I can, simply. or I can right-click and say new, new version from master and edit the same image to look completely, totally, and really different. You know, like you say, a really contrasty monochrome when the blues goes to black, or a really subtle color where it's all pastels. I can do it all right. on the same image. Um, let me ask you this now: you can set up uh, picture profiles. I'm just using that as a generic term. I'm going to show them. Yeah, preset. Well, you know, presets. I can set up presets in Lightroom. Yeah, right. In Lightroom, yeah, there are presets. Do you set up for yourself a uh, a certain style of preset that you apply to? Uh, no, because no. okay, so I... you're treating every picture separately. I am, but I tend to have a, an algorithm I follow to get what I consider my look. But every picture needs a little bit more or a little bit less of everything. Mm -hmm. So I tend to, so I start by setting the white point so that the whites are just not peaking, like just right on the edge. You know, there's one or two of the pixels have gone red in the speculars or whatever. And then I set the black point up to match. And at that stage, you sort of, you've bracketed in the good part of the image. Then I usually throw in a little bit of vibrancy, um, a little bit of clarity, and then I'll do... Uh, an S curve in the tones usually. Mm -hmm. Sometimes only knock the shadows down. Sometimes knock the shadows down and lift the mid tones up a little. But it's always it's every image will have the same ingredients, but in different proportions to get sort of the, the my look. So, and because it's always in different proportions, I prefer to do it by hand. Right. So you're sitting down with an image, you're looking at it, and say, you're basically following uh, a bit of a recipe. You're tweaking it a little bit. Right, so you're saying, okay, yeah. I'm gonna start this, and, and you're starting with some basic, uh, it sounds like you're starting with some basic uh, adjustments. So you're getting your contrast set the way. Yeah, you're... actually, the very first thing would be white balance, actually. So actually, to All be right. honest, well, Lightroom and most of these apps actually lay out the bricks, or whatever you want to call them, in that sort of a sane order, where first you get the basics right, and then you start to tweak with the, the more subtle... Yeah, that's someone, you know that's that's someone else's um, decision, by the way. I mean, it is. But if you, you know, think about it, well, yeah. until you get the the black and the white point set up right and the white balance set up right, any any other changes you do are going to be completely destroyed by going back and setting either of those things later. Yeah, but because because when you're working on a computer, it's non-destructive. What difference does it make what your order is? Well, the difference is that you won't be able to actually see the effects. If you dial in all the clarity or whatever you want and then decide that actually my white point was way off, you may as well just start over because that's going to change the image so much that all the other work you were doing in the lower down bricks has right. been Well, you're talking about an efficient way of doing it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what I'm talking go. about is, well, I'm, I'm just saying there isn't, there isn't really one way to do it. I mean, yeah, you could, no, do, you, you could start with like tweaking your clarity, let's say, or your saturation. And then, okay, okay, well, I'm going to go back and change my contrast. But once you change your contrast, you increase your, you change your saturation again. So that means then you go back to your saturation and you dial it down again. So you're taking yes. three steps rather than two steps. But so what? I mean, I mean, there's an a Sure. There's yeah. An efficiency. In. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing that happens a lot is I'll edit images at night and I'll be in a particular, I'll be, I don't know, I'll be in a heavy handed mood. Mm -hmm. And then I generally won't post them to Flickr on the first edit. And then I'll come back the next day and look at them again. And usually what I end up, I, I very rarely dial it up on day two. I'll generally back it off a bit and go, do you know something? Maybe it doesn't quite need to be such a shouty blue. Mm -hmm. Maybe I'll pull that back a little bit. And maybe maybe some of the shadows are allowed to exist without being solid black. Maybe I'll, I'll back off on, on that S-curve a little bit. So I actually very often go a little OTT on edit number one. And then on edit number two, only back off. 
just and not uh, you know maybe just by, you know back off say ten percent or something mm-hmm. and that usually does it right so I I tend to be a bit too heavy handed on day one. And so, will you end up saving those adjustments to then apply to other pictures, or is it just for that one picture? Generally, just for the one picture. What I will tend to do is I'll tend to have a gray card with me and I'll tend to take a one picture of the gray card, then I'll copy and paste that white balance over them all. So that at least all the so that. Yeah, so you have this sort of preset white balance that you yeah. Will copy so you have to everything yeah. scientifically correct white balance. That doesn't mean that's what's in the final picture because right. if I it's want some, to feel, I, I will back it off a little bit left or right. But I'm going to be working a little bit left or right from scientifically accurate, uh-huh. which is so much easier than trying to because there's two sliders for the white balance, and that gives you way too many infinities if you don't have a sane starting point. Hmm. Okay, that's interesting. Yes, yeah. So, but you know, I would very rarely copy an entire edit because, to me, every picture that's worthy of bothering being edited is unique. Okay. So I'll shoot two hundred and edit twenty. Yeah. Well, it's certainly for the work that I know you shoot, and I think about. um, Well, just going back to the picture profile thing, like for some of the practical stuff that I've done, is uh, remember I was telling you that that I'll set my settings on my camera. Sometimes so that it looks very flat and uninteresting, just like the raw file would be. So my JPEG that shows up on the screen looks bleh. Yeah. Um, but I, f- I found out that sometimes when I'm taking pictures and I'm showing them to people, like say I'm working uh, on a job, like an event, right? And yeah. I'm taking pictures and I'm, I'm – like every now and then I'll show the back of the camera to the person I just photographed. Like, hey, this is, this is what you look like. And if I don't have my picture profile set into some sort of interesting – you know, the yeah. color combination, the back of the camera is going to look very flat. Now, for me as a photographer, I'd be like, okay, that might be great because then I can go and process it the way I, I want to. But then to a civilian, I show them that and they're like, oh, my skin is gray and my hair is not that color red or whatever. And I find that, you know, that's not very helpful. And so I will set my picture profiles on my camera so that it gets a little vibrant and, you know, something that appeals to the eye. And then if I have to show a client um, the pictures, at least on the back of the camera, which, you know, I don't always recommend, but sometimes you, you have to do that. Yeah. That, that they see, like, what maybe the final picture might look like. Because I might go take those files into Lightroom and then adjust the saturation so that their hair looks nice and their skin looks, you know, more pleasant. Um, but, uh, you know, sometimes they want to see that preview on the back of the camera. Like, what will the picture look like? And it depends on you know, the subject that I'm shooting. So in a sense, I'm like trying to set up my film stock ahead of time so that I can show, I can say, oh, well, this is what the shots will look like in black and white. So I might set up my picture profile as black and white so that when I look at the preview on the back of the camera, I can say, oh, that's what the subject looks like in black and white. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And I guess the other thing is if you were planning on doing monochrome or something, it might actually be helpful when you look in the back of the camera not to be distracted by the color. Exactly. I think that makes a lot more sense on the mirrorless cameras now because the mirrorless cameras, you can actually preview uh, your picture profile live. So on my mm-hmm. Fuji cameras, when I've set up my picture profile to black and white um, – and I'm looking at the LCD, and the LCD is giving me an actual, you know, representation of what my final file will look like. I can preview the world in black and white um, on the yeah. back of the camera. So, and that's because the picture profile is set to black and white, um, or the, in, actually, in a, on a Fuji camera, it's a film simulation that's set to black and white, or to 
you know, sepia or whatever. By the yeah. way, I never, I never shoot sepia on my camera. The picture profile for sepia is just, every camera is terrible. Well, everyone seems to think that sepia should be luminous orange <laughs> as opposed to a subtle coloring of a monochrome image. Right. Very, very, very subtle too. Just a hint of yeah. subtle. But yeah. I, I think on, on, is it, I think it was an aperture that had a sepia preset and I would apply it at uh, 0.2. So basically what they thought was sepia, I would apply 0.2 of that over a monochrome. Agree. I would agree. Actually, I would probably never do a sepia picture. I would always start black and white, and then I would add the sepia as yeah, a, exactly. as yeah, a color layer. Yeah, exactly. At the very, very end, yeah. a, a, a very subtle hint. And that's all it takes, just that little hint to knock it to warm instead of cold. Yeah. The um, uh, Going back to picture profiles again for a second, when, when you only shoot JPEG, uh, those picture profiles, whatever they are, they're baked mm. into your image. And so you have no other option to the process. Like we were talking about the hipstamatic pictures. You're, you're kind of done with that. Yes. And I think a lot of people, when they first get their cameras, they don't really understand that they can shoot RAW and JPEG and that they have all these options. They, the, um, actually, I don't know what cameras are defaulting to now when you first buy them. Um, I haven't bought a camera in so long. I don't yeah, know. I don't know either. That would be a good question. Um, and you know, it's one of those things I don't even look at. Because once I get my camera, I'm instantly messing around with the menu, so I don't always see what the default setting is. But, um, uh, like, cameras used to come at, uh, what was the other thing? They would produce files that were, what was it, 72 DPI. Now, I'm getting really technical here, but when you would, mm. when you would go to print your file, uh, your, your file was preset by the camera, by its metadata, to be 72 dots per inch. And so your print, prints could end up being very, very large. And they've changed that over time. Now most cameras um, output a, a, a file where the, the metadata says 240 DPI. Um, Which makes more sense because that's, that's something you could hold at arm's length. Whereas right. at 72 DPI, you'd want to stand well back for it right. not to look But it's crud. one of the things that the cameras, like, you know, they defaulted to that. Then. And then I'm really curious now, do cameras, like when you pull a Nikon D whatever out of a box and you take a picture, yeah. is it RAW plus JPEG? Is it JPEG? Is it JPEG medium size? Is JPEG small size? I mean, I'd be really curious about that because, like I said, I haven't bought a new camera in a while either, so I don't know. But um, the I, I think the important thing is like uh, is to is to leaving yourself with a lot of options. And so, like for instance, uh, I'm now shooting mostly with my Fuji, and I'm mostly processing my JPEGs. But I shoot RAW plus JPEG, so that somewhere along the line, I have a raw file that if I ever needed to go back to, I can because I've got that raw file. But but yeah, it's most, a safety net, right? It's a safety net, yeah. But the camera that I'm in love with these days in the Fuji X series is creating a final file as a JPEG with my picture profile baked in with my own little recipe, as it were. Yeah. That I resonate with. That I look at it and say, like, yeah, that's my that's my voice with these pictures. That's the style that I want. And so what I'm end up doing is a little bit different than what you're doing these days. Is I mean, you've been doing this forever, and I used to be doing it, but I'm moving away from sitting in front of the camera, uh, sorry, the computer, to come up with my final image. Um, yeah, I know. I have a feeling if, if I had a camera that was more capable in that regard, I may well start experimenting in that way. But the simple fact is, with my D5100, uh, there's almost no choice in picture profile, and there's no control within those profiles. So... 
the end result will be extremely disappointing. Whereas exactly. it sounds like yeah. y- you have way more going on. Well, yeah, and I'm looking at what do I have here? Um, my Nikon D7000, right? It, mm. If I take a picture with it, I have the ability to, if I go into the menu, um, I've got this thing called retouch menu. And it lets me do um, red eye correction, trim the photograph, make it monochrome, filter effects, color balance. Um, there's actually here something called raw processing. <laughs> right? So if I click on that, I'm, I'm doing this live. So <laughs> raw processing. All right. So we'll bring up the picture. And I'll say raw processing, and it'll let me change. What do I can change here? I can change the image quality, the size of it, so the actual um, resolution of it. I can change exposure compensation. Uh, I can make it monochrome, or I can make it more saturated. I can turn on and off noise reduction, uh, color space. And that's about it. Something called D-lighting, which is a, I don't want to get into D-lighting is basically pretend HDR. Yeah, it's a little bit opening up the shadows, too. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so those are the things I can do. And I can take that image, that raw file that's in my camera, and I can sort of basically reprocess it a little bit uh, and then spit out another JPEG, which will then be stored on the camera. Um, but it's a little bit limited. Um, on my – what do I have here? I've got my Fuji X-T10, which is like a little mirrorless DSLR. And – Let's see, I'm going to hit play, and I got a picture. I can go to the menu, and I have a raw conversion menu, and I can change a lot of stuff here. Um, I can push. Uh, when you, you go, okay, so the raw conversion, but can you then save that out so you don't have to go into that menu every time? Can, can you sort of save it in a way that you can just have it automatically apply? Um, no, I can't. The only way I can do that is to set up what's called the preset and shoot the picture in that way. So I can set all these settings up as a picture profile preset and then set the, I've got multiple places on the camera where I can store those presets but I can't okay well that, that's I a big step it, up right yeah and I can shoot it but I can't repro- I can't store these reprocess stuff now I don't know if the right. newer Fuji cameras let you do that or not but this one I can't but I have a lot more options in terms of reprocessing and so essentially the 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 um, the Fuji camera lets is like a little version of Lightroom or of uh, a Photoshop camera raw where it lets me take my raw image and reprocess it a lot. I mean, there's a lot more options. It's it's still limited compared to Lightroom. But yeah, but such a difference to, to to the minimalist options you have in the in the Nikon's. Yeah, I mean, and that's what makes it more appealing to me. So I have to take a picture. I was photographing some uh, cherry blossoms, and uh, I realized that I was shooting them with one of the lower saturation color settings on my camera. And mm-hmm. so I was looking at them like, well, you know, they're cherry blossoms. They shouldn't be low saturated, at least for what I was trying to do. I'm not saying that there's only one way to shoot cherry blossoms, but... Yeah, well, you know, in, in terms of reality, they're they're pretty vibrant things. Yeah. I wanted them nice, but I didn't shoot them that way. And, and when we go back to talking about film, it's like if you were shooting <laughs> cherry blossoms with black and white film, that's it. You're done. Yep. You better hope you're good at the zone system because if you get those in the wrong zone, you're done. Right. You might have like, oh my gosh, I forgot that I had black and white film in my camera and I shot all these, you know, these fall trees. Um, It doesn't mean the pictures wouldn't be bad, but it's like not what you were expecting. Yeah, 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 right. (laughs) But I'm like shooting uh, cherry blossoms with a low saturation. So I'm sitting there in the coffee shop. I'm looking at the pictures. I'm like, oh, that's not what I wanted. And so I just go to hit the raw conversion 
on my my uh, my camera, and I can reprocess it. I can choose a different. Um, what they have is simulated film stocks, and it's like, well, I want a more vibrant film stock for the cherry blossom, and then I save it, and then it saves it out as a JPEG, and it gives me now a second copy of that picture, which are then my workflow is I transfer it to my phone, and I do a little processing on my phone, um, yeah. and then and then I output it, but. Um, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot more. Uh, get a lot more options these days, and I'm so, sure down the line with newer cameras that are coming out, there are going to even be more options uh, for for dealing with stuff. This stuff in camera, but you know, it's either either I'm processing it in the camera or we're processing it in Lightroom. It's you know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's whatever you're, whatever you're comfortable with. Um, yeah, I'm wondering if 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 that kind of stuff is going to move from the camera to the phone. I, part of me thinks that the future is that the camera will just send stuff to the phone and let the phone's much better user interface do the heavy lifting but maybe camera manufacturers don't want to cede that control I don't know that's I mean everybody they're all everybody's got a different um, uh, idea I think every camera manufacturer is dealing with it differently uh, Fuji seems to very much embrace the the phone um, process because they have these apps that will let you transfer the picture from the camera to the phone but so yeah, because, I mean, you know, the, the LCDs in the back of our cameras, I mean, they are getting better all the time, but there's still not a patch on what you're going to get in a shiny new iPhone or a new Galaxy. Right, because the, the, new, the newer phones have a lot more, they can show a lot more colors now, so they're, yeah. in a sense, more accurate. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I would like to think that, you know, I think that they would want to start embracing this new stuff um i do because uh, yeah because it's either that they're going to have to try to get the cameras on the internet so you can post straight from your camera but that just seems like it's never going to work because the firmware will be out of date every five minutes and the right. you know the web is moving on so if they can get them onto your camera and then have your or sorry onto your phone and then have your phone get them all onto the internet and stuff maybe that's the way to go but i i can see the the the, the, the day arriving where very few people end up with a traditional computer anywhere between the shutter firing and the picture being up on the internet I, well, that would be. Uh, that's your life. Right? That's my life. Yeah, it's it's a, a thing that I've chosen to do. Is um, uh, I mean, there are times when I want to sit in front of the computer and process the picture, but uh, again, it really depends on what I'm shooting. Um, but it, going yeah. back to, um, I want to go back to Lightroom for a second. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I was saying that the Fuji camera has these film simulations built in, but now there are companies. There have been these companies out that are creating film simulations that you can then buy and then install in Lightroom or Photoshop and and have these sort of preset uh, picture profiles then applied to your pictures as you're importing them or apply them, um, you know, on a per-picture basis uh, during, you know, your post-production thing. So you can have a film that looks like, you know, Kodak Tri-X, make your pictures all look like Tri-X pictures or something like that. But, um, yeah. you know, you can buy these things now. Uh, they've apparently decided that they're going to simulate all these film stocks and, and then sell them to you. Um, I know you said you don't use those. Oh, I don't because I, I'm sort of, it's, uh, I'm sort of after my own look rather than, but I can see the appeal of them because, you know, the, the, those films defined what a photograph was for many years. I mean, you know, why do, why can you tell instantly when looking at a picture approximately what decade it's from? Well, the answer is because of the film. Right, right. Well, actually, you know, I'm curious. Why do you say it's your own look? Because, like, the days when you were shooting film, you were happy with that, uh, uh, what was it, the Ektar 800 or whatever. 
Like somehow that yeah. resonated with you and that was like, that's your look. And so you were satisfied with that at some point, right? Yeah, but that's because I didn't know any better. Well, we didn't have anything better. There wasn't an, anything yeah, exactly. to know any better. That, so I, I, I feel no particular desire to go back to that. Uh-huh. <laughs> but I imagine... Like for, for me, film was something I did for just my teenage years. But I imagine if I had, if I had been doing film while I was as seriously into photography as I am now, I imagine I would want to get back to that. I imagine there would be a really strong draw to recapture that look uh-huh. yeah. and i just i don't have that just because of an accident of age or whatever um but i i know i'm sure a lot of people out there really want you know they they have strong emotional attachment to some of those looks like velvia seems to really make people's heart beat like you know yeah, people yeah. love so, velvia yeah it was a great film so if you genuinely love shooting an actual Vavia and you don't really fancy chemicals and all the, the hassle of, that went with film, but you still feel strongly about the emotion that particular treatment of color evoked, well, why wouldn't you give someone a few bob for a filter to give you that in Lightroom? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure. makes sense. I mean, the other thing I'm thinking about is like, you know, you and me were, were of that cross generation where we shot film and we shot digital and we know the difference between the two. People, yeah. younger people who are getting cameras now, and most of them are using, you know, iPhones, but let's say, you know, people are picking up cameras for the first time, have no reference to film. Absolutely. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Well, fact, I guess what of- they're thinking is, uh, why doesn't my picture look like the National Geographics I picked up in, you know, someone's house or whatever? And the answer was, well, because those National Geographics were shot on film. And then they get these apps or whatever, and suddenly they can press a button and make their picture look like that iconic shot of whatever. Well, at least it look, like, uh, looks like in terms of color, but maybe not the subject matter. Well, uh, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, or yeah, no, a, particular, a particular monochrome. I mean, there is, there, but let's, a, a lot even... of our history is... is mm is captured in these looks, which, you know, we know it's because of the film stock, but I think a lot of younger people would simply say it has a certain emotional feel. They couldn't put their finger on it, but they pick up these apps and they scroll through these options and suddenly the picture looks like the iconic picture of Che Guevara or whatever mm-hmm. because it's simulating the contrasty look of that particular film. So it's capturing a certain emotion of a certain time. Okay, so you're saying, this is interesting because I'm thinking about this for the first time, but you're saying that we're still always going to have film to reference to because we already have all this stuff is here. Like, yeah, you know, we have Ansel Adam books been, yeah. and we have, um, you know, but even, even just think of it. Don't even think in terms of artistic photography, just in terms of our culture. If you see a photograph of Babe Ruth or whatever, that has forever fossilized the films of the day. You will never get that feel of baseball in that era mm-hmm. without simulating film. Hmm. Okay. All right. That makes sense. Yeah, so it is, it's baked forever, I think, into our psyche. It is the look of, like, like the, 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 the Renaissance is forever looks like a Rembrandt. Wow. Right. It didn't look We're like... We're always going to have that. We, we, yeah. And we always have that now as our history. Like, yeah. And so JFK will forever look like the black and white press films yeah. of his day. So you're saying that it still makes sense for these... Uh, like my camera, uh, my Fuji camera has Fuji film stock. So Velvia, Astia, Provia. And yeah. these, um, this one company, what is it called? Visco, VSCO, Visual, um, what is it called? Stands for? And VSCO stands for Visual Supply Company. 
and they make mm. these presets for Lightroom to simulate film. So they have Tri-X, Kodak, I'm looking at one here, the Film Essentials Pack for $60. Tri-X, uh, Portra 800, Neopan, Fuji, um, what else? Agfa Vista 100. So those are always going to be part of our history, no matter what, those film stocks. Right? And, and we're going to look at pictures these days from the masters and from people who have been the beginning of photography, and they're going to have used some of these film stocks. And we're going to say, yes, we want our pictures to – I resonate with that style. I want my pictures yeah. to look like that. And so these will still be things that we, ref we reference. I think so. I, th I think they're, they're forever baked in. That's interesting. I was going to come at it from a totally different point of view because I wrote in the notes. I was saying, why are we still calling them? Why do we still refer to them as a film stock? Well, I'm not sure if necessarily we need to keep referring to them as the film stock forever, but we still need to have them. Whether we refer to them as, you know, 60s monochrome in future, you know, we may oh. develop better names for them than like the Ansel particular Adams, brand of film. Yeah, Ansel Adams monochrome something or other. Yeah, I mean, we probably get more descriptive names for them, and that the, the look will, will develop some sort of you know, nomenclature over time. But the looks of those iconic films, I think they're with us forever. Yeah. I mean, the yeah, you're right. And this is me lamenting as an old guy, but I'm thinking like, you know, there's still, there's still simulations. They're not the actual. Sure. I know. I know. And, and they have, not... you know, all, if you render the same color differently, it has a different emotion. So those particular, responses to yellow versus red versus green versus blue, they have an emotional resonance. And that, that's always going to be there, whether you simulate it or whether you capture it through actual yeah. photochemical processes. The, the emotional effect of the fact that it makes reds more vibrant, blues less vibrant, whatever the particular film does, that emotional effect is real. Mm -hmm. And it's just based on how the colors get mixed. And whether we simulate that digitally, or whether we do it with real film, it, the effect is the same. The emotions are the same. It, it messes with our brain in the same way. So it, in some regards, it's the same. All right. So it doesn't matter how we get there. The end result is, yeah. How? What does it do to us as we're viewing it? And yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. And of course, I could get back into, uh, oh boy, but it's not actual film, and it's not the actual light, and it's all. I mean, even digital cameras. I, I started to think about, uh, you know, the slides that I that I have in my collection, and I know that the. But the light that was there when I was photographing it was actually hitting that piece of film. And I have an actual analog record of that piece of, you know, of that day that I was wherever it was. And yeah, today, but I bet you the print exist. is more interesting. And mm -hmm. you can never make that same print again. Yeah. Right? You take the same negative and you turn it into a photograph. And that photograph is a one-off unique because you're going to have been in a certain mood as you were messing around in the darkroom. And you're yeah. going to develop it differently today than tomorrow than the day after. All right. All right. Yeah. All right. So I'm just being nostalgic. <laughs> but, but well, we both are just differently. Because, <laughs> <laughs> right? Because as far as I'm concerned, the whole purpose of these is nostalgia to a very large extent, right? What the, Why uh, do we want to capture that look? Well, because it has some sort of emotional resonance. So that surely that's nostalgia personified. Yeah, it is. And, but we're just giving them names. I mean, you know, just because someone is calling it a film stock doesn't necessarily mean that it's actually. A sure. Of the film stock. It's just something to refer to. We could just call it, you know, uh, picture profile number one. And like, yeah. oh, that makes me feel like this. Picture profile number two makes me feel like that. And picture profile number three is when I shoot uh, landscapes and it makes me feel like something. So, 
we're just using these uh, yeah. these uh, I terms mean, for those. You know, people who used to shoot with those films in the real world, those names mean something to those people. But I think a lot of people, they 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 buy a pack that says vintage film. They're they're just swiping or scrolling through the different options to see what looks right. They're not reading the names, going, oh yeah, no, I definitely want to get this particular Kodak, whatever. They they they're just moving through until they get the look. Mm-hmm. And the name is purely arbitrary. I mean, I'm not even sure if. A lot of the people who use those filters necessarily know or care what those particular names mean. All they know is, yeah, the filters. I want it to look like this, and yeah. this looks like this. I would, I would sort of encourage uh, an, ex, uh, an exploration of um, this idea of picture profiles over filtration, uh, mainly because of what you were saying before, the, but them being not subtle. Uh, yeah. And also what I said about it, it's like someone else's idea of what this looked like rather than exploring it yourself and finding out what it what it what the final result really means to you so um you know you want to create a black and white picture yeah you can use a filter on your instagram or uh you know whatever app that you're using or even on your camera and it will look one way but that's someone's idea of of that Mm -hmm. and what i kind of want people to take away from this is to find out what resonates with them uh, exactly. And it may change subject to subject, right? You you may go out and shoot, um, you know, some street shots and you may want one look and then you may go to, to somewhere completely different than, you know, the cherry blossoms that are out or whatever and you want a completely different look. So it, it's not even that it's your look. It's maybe your look for a particular subject. Right. You, you may have many looks. Right. Right. And, and it's, it's in that exploration that you're going to find, um, you know, you're going to find what matters to you. So... Yeah, uh, I mean, a filter and, does make it easy, you know. You could say, okay, well, it's, you know, I'm wrapped up and I'm done. But wait, uh, yeah, but you never quite get what you want. Is sort of the that, price you pay you're for never that, quite right? Satisfied, right? Is what you're saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah that that'd be my view. And it. yeah, it's quick and easy. But no, it isn't what you really wanted. Yeah, uh, I do like the idea that they're um, the the cameras are getting more involved with uh, allowing you to create your own uh, look in the camera and and um, have that. Uh, Save so well, that's particularly of, cool. Huh? Yeah. So that you that can is save particularly that. cool. But I think though the, the the sort of the way I think of it, the bottom line is always. So it doesn't really. To, to some extent, we've had this argument before, right? The argument about film stocks isn't very different to the argument about HDR. Isn't very different about the argument about any filter that's ever been invented ever. At the end of the day, the the pixel peepers will care about how. But 99% of people will just look at the photograph and they won't have any idea how it got to be what it is. All they are going to do is they're going to react instinctively to the picture in front of them. And if they like it, they like it. And they don't know they don't know or care how it was created. It doesn't matter a jot. At the end of the day, if you produce really nice pictures that speak to people, jobs are good and it doesn't matter how you got there. And that's that. I can't add anything to that. That's perfect. Yeah. Okay, that's exactly where I want to end this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> At least this part of talking about picture profiles. So we, we start off with the technical and we end up with what it feels like and what you see. Um, yeah, and, you know, as long as you're happy with the outcome, I'm never going to say to someone, oh, you've, you've taken the wrong process. You know, the question is, are you happy with the pictures you're posting? And if you are, great. I, mean, I don't care how you did it. Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Well, uh that's all I want to talk about in terms of picture. Okay. I mean, it wasn't, yeah, no, it's the direction I wanted to go into, but, uh, yeah. Um, I, I would, uh, might suggest to you, I know at some point, but like, you know, mm. investigate some of the, um, 
the uh, presets that you can get for Lightroom because um, they're very interesting starting points. Uh, um, hmm. And there's a lot of free ones that you can get. So you can actually load up some film simulations uh, that that well, you can sit there and you can you know copy them into your image and uh, and try them out. But um, they're very interesting starting points, and I might just you know um, be curious to see where you would go with with some of those on uh, some of your cool. Pictures. But I would encourage people to, to, to seek these out. I want to the three companies I want to mention that you can get presets for Lightroom is Visco VSCO, the visual supply company. I'll put uh, mm-hmm. links in the um, show notes. Uh, another one is called um, Mastin Labs, um, and another one's called Rocket Rooster. Uh, those Rocket com- Rooster. <laughs> yeah, they have a really great name. They have an interesting site. They're, they're RocketRooster.ninja. Oh wow. <laughs> These people have a sense of humor. Whatever yeah, else yeah. they have, they have a sense of humor. They do have a sense of humor, and um, they're they're again, they're you could. You, it's a great way to sort of look at your pictures and see, like, do these picture profiles, do these presets fit your um, what you're trying to say with your images? So I, you know, I'm all for exploring this stuff. Even though some other company made them, they sort of save you a bunch of steps. But again, like, they can be used as as starting points for your own imagery. Uh, Interesting, and actually, the. The rooster people also do final cut stuff, so you don't you don't have to keep this filter exploration to still images. Of course, you can right. apply you can well, apply them I, just as well as a movie. Yeah. For those Canon people who are out there, uh, your picture profiles will apply to. Well, actually, it's for any camera that that shoots video. Your picture profiles will apply to your your still JPEG images as well as for your video, because videos are essentially just thirty JPEG pictures glued together in one second. So. Whatever yeah. picture profile you set for your still images will be the same picture profile that will come out with your videos on your camera. So uh, be aware of that. Um, and, uh, and, and generally, I won't go into this too much, but generally when you're shooting film on your mm-hmm. cameras, you want to uh, you want to shoot the, the, the flattest um, version of your uh, picture profile. In other words, a picture profile that's very low contrast and stuff because that leaves you more room for doing post-processing. Um, yes. Yeah. If you've already crunched those blacks up, and there's very little you can do about it in post because you've already done that. Exactly. And 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 the reason why that's different than stills is because most of these cameras will not let you shoot raw video. So the video that you're creating with your camera is kind of the baked-in style. Uh, and so you'd want to have you might want to have options for uh, bringing your video into your into your onto your computer and having a little bit more options for it, but it doesn't mean you don't you can't set up picture sure. profiles for your film and be happy with it. I mean, you can. There's nothing wrong with that. But uh, you know, with with when you're shooting RAW plus JPEG stills, you do have the option to go back to your RAW files and and tweak it. But with video, most basic cameras don't shoot RAW video, so you're kind of stuck with the baked in version. Anyway, that's just a little little caveat. So. Yeah, and I guess so. Then the argument would be: so you shoot it in the camera in a fairly neutral way, and then you have all of your fun in Lightroom or not Lightroom in um, Final Cut or Premiere. Your Final Cut or Premiere or iMovie or whatever, whatever it is you're right. using. I don't know, maybe this new Fancy Pants Clips app has nice filters. I don't know. I haven't yeah. played with it yet. <laughs> I'm gonna try that. <laughs> that's for another episode. So, but anyway, all right, cool. Um, before we go, you uh, mm-hmm. bef- offline, you were telling me about. Um, yeah, so pure coincidence. Series. Yeah, yeah, pure, pure coincidence. So we arranged to record this a few days ago, and I came home, and I, I had an hour to kill before recording time, and I flicked on Netflix, and lo and behold, one notification. Oh, yeah, whatever, click here. 
The second series of a Netflix-owned documentary called Tales by Light was released today. And so this is a Netflix-made documentary about photographers. And it's not... It's What do you call that style of documentary where there is no presenter? It's basically... I'm sure there was a producer and I'm sure it was expertly produced. Uh-huh. But the effect is that you feel like you are with photographers in the field and they are talking to you one-on-one. But there's no interviewer obviously asking them questions it's just in the final voice. edit. It's their own voice. It's their voice telling you what they're doing and why and their pictures. The cinematography is amazing. Is it? Oh, uh, oh it is stunning. So this is this is pop it onto your biggest television in the fullest HD you possess and sit back and enjoy. They're, they're 24 minute episodes or something like that. They're or 20, you know, basically the, the half hour length TV show, but oh, you know, with size. room for ads. They're bite, they're bite size. size. Yeah. yeah. And they are beautiful, thought provoking. I mean, obviously they, they don't choose, you know, boring photographers. They're choosing people with, um, no. people with character pointing their lenses at interesting things. And so they are very, they're very engaging. And as I said, there's now two series worth of them out there. So series one was thoroughly enjoyable and series two is out today. So I would actually highly recommend that if, if you've watched, they're very similar in style. There's one on, there's a series in design. I think you had mentioned you'd watched as well called what, abstract. abstract. The art yeah. of design. Yes. Yes. And they're also, they remind me also of chef's table, which is another uh, Netflix owned series where you sort of get into the head of chefs. Hmm. So again, it's the chef talking to you. And there is no obvious presenter, but obviously there was. I mean, the, the, you know, but you know what I mean? It's, it's that sort of style of, and you're with a highly creative person following them as they do their thing and they're talking you through it. it it's, I, I find it very enjoyable, very revealing and a real feast for the eye. I mean, Netflix definitely have high production values. Mm-hmm. So, so these look and sound beautiful. It looks like they're highly. Um, uh, it looks like they're more nature travel based photographers. I'm looking at the thumbnails, and there's like underwater photographers, and someone in the Himalayas, and then Africa. And, uh, yeah, actually, you're right. There, there Antarctica. is there is a, a sort of a strong bias towards interesting people and places. Because it is also, uh, you know, tribes and so forth. It, it, yeah, yeah. A lot of the photographers are as interested in the people in the place as they are in the place. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm, I'll add that to my list. And and I, like I said to, to you, and you just mentioned the, the show Abstract, uh, also by Netflix, which is the the art of design. And it, and it covers um, different people who are who design, like a car designer and a, a stage designer there's a photographer the in there. Me. Yeah, the one that got me in that abstract series that I had no... I, my brain hadn't put it together that someone must have been putting so much thought and effort into it. was the one with the guy who did the Air Jordans. Yes, the shoe the, the shoe designer. The shoe guy. I mean, obviously, of course they're designed. Of course there's an amazing amount of work into them. But my brain had never put two and two together. It was <laughs> absolutely fascinating to, to watch that man at work and to see how much goes into his shoe. Yes, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, if you enjoy that kind of documentary, you will love Tales by Light. It's of the same, it's of the same style and the same quality. Yeah, I I would definitely recommend, uh, I will watch um, the Tales by Light and I do recommend Abstract. I think for anybody who is wanting to open up their visual sense, and that's what we are as photographers, you want to, um, you want to see as much as possible and, and restricting ourselves. I'm not saying that the documentary about photographers is restricting, but I mean like any kind of show about design and art, 
uh, is just you know opening your eyes up to to different. Um, I will say, Antonio, from a photography point of view, I highly recommend Chef's Table. Chef's Table. Chef's Table. It's about the creation of food, but the cinematography and photography of the food, it will have you salivating. <laughs> the okay. the photographic that. art of the food is as impressive as everything else in Chef's Table. Okay. I got that added to my list. I was, I was also going to say, oop, I better not stop. Oop, starting to play. I don't want to oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was just adding it and I ended up playing. But uh, it, it's good for us um, to, you know, keep our eyes open to all sorts of different things. I mean, I understand what you're saying about the photography in it, the actual photography of it. But even seeing how someone designs food. Like yes. what goes in, because it's a creative process, just like photography is. So I think. Yeah, they're trying to hit the same sense as we are, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. It, it, the, the, when you see the, the food these guys do, it, it, we, we're watching television. We cannot smell it. We definitely cannot taste it. And yet we're absolutely salivating. So obviously yeah. they're taking all our other senses. <laughs> yeah. And one of those is definitely the visual. Like the, yeah. the, the, that program is really visually very well done. Um. I should leave on this last note. There was a documentary called uh, "Is It Jiro uh, Dreams of Sushi." Have you seen that? I have not. Another Sounds one. Good. It's all. It's it's probably on Netflix. It's not a Netflix. Um, I don't know if it's a Netflix produced documentary, but it's about uh, a, a pretty famous sushi chef in Japan, and it's the filming of it is beautiful as well. Uh, but and I also think about design and how how someone takes the time to create food that looks beautiful and is and is respected so um i know we're sort of way off of photography now but but you I, it helps you open up your mind to uh someone who else is creative but anyway jiro dreams of sushi uh, i think that's the name of it um i would also put on the list if you're gonna put chef's table on there i'll put jiro dreams of sushi fortunately it doesn't appear to be available in the irish version of here. oh no it is hang on J explore Oh no, we get titles related too. We don't actually get the oh, okay. original. It, it's available. It is available in the states. Um, Lucky sods. Yeah, uh, and it's about a it's about a restaurant in Japan that the uh, it's incredibly expensive, and you have to make reservations like literally months and months in advance. Okay. Um, it says it's an art that requires continual perfection. The chef's mastery is legendary. Savor perfection in one bite, but. Hopefully you'll get a chance to see it. And I recommend that to anybody who's listening to a, to our show. Too. Cool. Excellent. So I think we've reached, we've actually gone a little over than I expected, but we're at about an hour. So I'm, I'm happy. I think we got a lot of stuff covered. And well, it was great fun. I, I, I could talk to you forever, Antonio. So it's <laughs> a good thing you, you do remember to eventually, you know, say, uh, how's about we call it a day now? Right. Because I, I'd probably still be here by morning. I mean, the, the sun is well and truly set here in Ireland, but I'd probably still be talking to you yeah. by dawn. And I think my wife is headed home, so we're going to be eating dinner soon. So I will have uh -huh. to cut it off. I don't know if anybody wants to hear me eating dinner on air. <laughs> no, I'm not, I don't think that makes good radio. No, I don't think so either. But uh, anyway, Bart, I really, really, really appreciate you spending your time uh, hanging out with me tonight and uh, going on the show. A genuine pleasure, Antonio. I can't think of a nicer thing to do on a Friday evening. Yeah, great. So how, how, how are we uh, finding you on the Internet? Where do we look? Well, the easiest way to find everything I get up to, because I, I tend to dip my toe into a lot of things, is to go to bartb.ie, i.e. for Ireland, 
Um, and Bart B because no one could spell my surname. Um, so I also own BartBushots.ie, but there's no point in telling people to go there. So if you go there, you'll find out that I do a photography podcast called Let's Talk Photography, which is at lets-talk.ie. And you're on Flickr as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, so if you go to BartBeater, my Flickr is linked from there. Uh, in fact, it, it shows you the, the most recent 20 shots, I think. So they sort of whet your appetite. Yeah, and you are going off in so many different directions now with your photography. So Yeah, right now I'm on a plane buzz. <laughs> and if you scroll back even one page, you'll see that up until you know six weeks ago, there wasn't a single photograph of a single airplane in my stream ever. And I'm sure if you check back in a month's time, there won't be any airplanes that'll be onto something else. Well, that's the future. You don't know where you're going with it. But it's I have no to, idea where you're going. It's fun to see your um, the directions that you go. So yeah, I recommend uh, following Bart on Flickr and, and checking out his website. And please listen to his show. I love his show. And Bart is, uh, I, I I put you down as one of the people who helped get me into this world. So I'm really uh, grateful for that. To my absolute pleasure, you know, I think it was Allison got me into into podcasting and shows. You know, pay it forward. So, yeah. Allison, <laughs> I got you in. You're going to get someone else in. And hey, presto, everyone wins. Great. Well, thanks anyway. Thanks for thanks for coming tonight. My pleasure. And uh, you guys can find us, uh, the Switch to Manual guys, at our website at switchtomanual.com. Let's see if I can do this really fast. <laughs> uh, we're on Twitter at switch the number two manual. So switch to manual. Uh, and while you're on Twitter, you might as well follow me at uh, at Am Rosario and follow Tom at Witness Photog, P-H-O-T-O-G. We are on the Facebooks. We love Facebook, uh, so join us there. I love sharing stuff there. It's old-time people stuff, but, you know, what the hell? People are on Facebook. Um, please subscribe to uh, my Flipboard magazine. I switched to manual Flipboard magazine. Actually, you can go to flipboard.com slash at Rosario. Flipboard is a really cool app. Uh, for iPhones and iPads, and I'm sure it's on Android as well. Uh, it's just a really nice way that we curate uh, stories from the photo world, so go check us out there. Um, if you guys listen to us on iTunes, we'd like you guys to give us reviews and star ratings because that's how we become more famous, which is what we want to do <laughs> at some point. Um, the other way you can support our site is we have two ways. One, we had a tip button if you feel generous and you want to give us some chump change. we got tip buttons at, pod, at our Podbean page and then our podcast page. And uh, you can just drop us uh, a few bucks and we'll buy some coffee. Or you can let us review your portfolios, which is we're trying to get people to send us your pictures. And we will give you uh, pretty good feedback about those images. We've got three different paid tiers. So it's a great way to support the site. Um, so send us your pictures and we will uh, critique them for you, give you some good advice. And uh, you know what? That's about it. I think uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks, hopefully. I'm trying to get the show out two times a month. I'm working on it, working on it, working on it. And uh, we'll get Tom, of course, to show up. And uh, we'll have a lot more guests popping up uh, during the year. So uh, thanks for joining us. And so uh, all I can say from that is uh, see you later. And if Tom was here, he'd say adios. Like his, I'll say, adios. <laughs> <laughs>